1980s, the trade union movement had really hit a bit of an, an impasse. There'd been really high levels of industrial struggle in the 1970s, but also, um, you know, a, a lot of recessions in Australia and worldwide and real pressure on maintaining living standards. And, and one reason that for that industrial struggle was to try and maintain wages and living standards. The conservative Fraser government in the 70s hadn't really had a decisive victory over the trade union movement in attempting to sort of hold down wage pressure. But the trade union movement also hadn't really been able to defeat the agenda of the Fraser government. It was a bit of an impasse. The unions and the Labor Party decided to sort of take a different approach in the 80s. Um, they entered into what was called a social contract, where in return for the unions holding down wages of their members, like so mandating the level of wages to only be the level of inflation, the... Um, and holding down prices to um, the level of inflation, there would be these trade-offs like um, increased social spending and um, the introduction of universal healthcare, which became Medicare, and um, various other sort of policy changes at the federal level. In practice, though, what happened quite quickly is the agreement focused pretty much um, squarely on wages. And wages weren't held to the level of inflation. They were actually pushed down below the level of inflation. So what we saw between 1983, when Hawke was elected, and 1996, when the Labor Party lost office, was what we call wage suppression. Um, so even though there were enormously high interest rates on mortgages in double digits um, in the late 80s and early 90s, and pressure on um, living costs, workers' wages were declining. And it was a very tough time, particularly for working-class families. One of the outcomes and enduring legacies of the accord years of the centralised wage-fixing system in the 1980s was a wave of union amalgamations, many smaller unions that had been in existence for decades and which had a deep connection with rank-and-file workers were swept up in these mega-unions, which over time grew more and more bureaucratic and less committed to and connected with workplace organising. You've argued these mega-unions have in some ways more political power, retaining influence on the Labor Party conference floor and virtual control, for instance, of pre-selection battles for electoral candidacy, but that, crucially, the social weight, the social power of trade unions has declined dramatically. I think that is true, that... um like the amalgamations happened for like multiple reasons. There were amalgamations that led to the formation of the sort of a larger metal workers union, which was the largest and biggest um, in 1983 when the accord came in, of boilermakers and blacksmiths and others. And some of that was because unions were so small, if they got into financial difficulty, they really were trying to shore themselves up through that amalgamation process. But there was a massive professionalisation, I guess, um, and bureaucratisation of unions that also took place in the Accord era. Money flowed from the government to training services and other infrastructure around the trade unions, which led to a really big expansion of paid staff and an amalgamation process that was quite deliberate. Um, it wasn't just unions potentially being on insecure financial footing, um, they wanted to cut down um, the number of unions they were dealing with to have fewer unions. And that did have the effect um, of, I guess, creating distance between shop floor activists and union um, officials. But at the same time, you know, the social contract is about 
they call it a no further claims like situation where you agree that you're only going to get wage rises that are inflation and you cannot make further claims. So it's basically a way of stopping industrial action. And that was sort of how it was sold to the Australian people. You know, Bob Hawke used the slogan in 83, bringing Australia together. We're going to end the industrial strife and we're going to bring all Australia together in this more harmonious kind of approach to industrial relations. And the Labor Party is the only people who can do it because of our special um, relationship with the trade unions. That stopping of industrial struggle is just as important as the amalgamations in creating that distance between what's happening in workplaces and these high-level negotiations in the accord process and in the arbitration courts. There's very little um, responsibility in workers' hands for wages in that era, if at all. Um, yet in the 70s, that connection was um, much more organic. Now, many people would be surprised to hear this history that arguably it was the Hawke and Keating federal Labor governments that ushered in the era of neoliberalism in Australia. To play devil's advocate for a moment for those people who would advocate the accord, you've mentioned the, the notion of a social contract and the social wage. Was there any justification for the accord, even though there were declines in real wages, given that there were some trade-offs perhaps in terms of union leaders having a seat at the table, that big round tables of negotiations in, in terms of wage fixing, in terms of securing certain elements of the social wage and, and social services? I suppose part of that question is, was this a deliberate concerted effort to to undermine and destroy the power of trade unions or was it well-intentioned, if you like, in terms of securing certain benefits, the social wage and so forth for workers in this country? Well, what took place under the Accord and what was, like, what was rolled out under the Accord is somewhat different from what was agreed to and signed in the actual words of the initial um, agreement. Um, I think... You're not wrong to play devil's advocate. I think the dominant view is that, and this is amongst academics and sort of commentators, um, that this was as good as the union could get in the particular economic circumstances of the early and late 1980s. But I think we also have to think about, well, what is the process of a social contract? Are unions' interests and the interests of people who are union members ever aligned with the interests of a government who is seeking to depress living standards as a way to deal with economic crisis? Yes, we all need economic crises to be resolved so that um, you know people aren't losing their homes and people have good employment. But the question is how we go about resolving that. And... I would argue that it's not about a balance sheet in saying, well, we got Medicare, which is a mostly universal um, health system. We got superannuation, although that's a privatised pension system with that capital, you know, being gambled on the stock market. We don't have to weigh that against the costs of wage suppression of what I would say is the disorganisation of labour, of stopping industrial action for a protracted period of time and dis disorganising the rank-and-file structures and the militancy of the labour movement. Actually, the unions needed an independent agenda of the Labour Party and the government in that period. And it sort of failed to break with the accord once the accord 
um, was clearly not in the interests of Australian workers. There have been many strategies put forward over the years by union leaders as to how the decline of trade unions might be arrested. There's been talk of service models, organising models, even a kind of user pays commercial advocacy model. What, in your view, is the way forward for turning the tide, for bringing trade unions back to where they once were as powerful organisations that manifest collective working class power? I think that's a really difficult question because it's... There's not just a bunch of ideas around. People have been working really, really hard to try and arrest the decline in trade union density. I guess I try and think about it as not so much rebuilding what we once had because there were problems with Australian trade unions. They were very white. They were very male. um, They weren't as inclusive as they could have been. I actually think we have the chance to build something better. Yes, we need to arrest the density and rebuild density, the number of people who um, are organised within workplaces. But perhaps that's where we need to start, not how can we get um, uh, to back to sort of 50% um, density of people in trade unions, but what, how do we organise in our own workplaces over particular issues? And with, you know, like only 9% of people in the private sector um, in trade unions, I think potentially the first lot of organising that has to happen is not even necessarily within trade unions. It's got to include people who are not trade union members yet. And it's through that active organising over workplace issues and broader political issues that I think um, we we can head in that direction. But it's definitely got to be based on workers having a ability to act in their own interests and to organise alongside um, each other. Many supporters of trade unions were excited when Sally McManus was appointed as Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. She courted controversy early on when she made a very straightforward remark about the legitimacy of breaking unjust laws. It's a reflection perhaps of how much union culture has declined and how low our expectations are of unions that such a, in my mind, perfectly straightforward position was, was met with such excitement. Nevertheless, there is a bit of a sense of renewal around her leadership of the ACTU. What are your thoughts on McManus and her stewardship of the ACTU? And do you think she represents a break with the stultified bureaucracy of the past 30-odd years? Look, I've met Sally a few times um, over the years, and she's always impressed me as incredibly committed to the labour movement and incredibly talented. And I think she did speak in a very straightforward way about what needs to be done in terms of the current laws. If laws are unjust, then it's reasonable to break them. Um, you know, my mother once said a similar thing about the Vietnam moratoriums, which she watched as a 14-year-old stenographer from, you know, the BHP offices in the centre of Melbourne, that sometimes things are unjust. I think that, you know, your average person in Australia doesn't have a difficult time accepting that kind of thing. Um, I think in general, the question is not just whether we change the rules, but if, if we can change the way that the social relations of work are organised and how ordinary workers can act in their own interests and the focus on the legal system um, in the current campaign is something that I guess, troubled me from the start, potentially too much focus on 
changing the rules of the game rather than thinking what is a strategy for an independent trade union movement in Australia that is not dependent on the Labor Party and not dependent on systems of arbitration and what would real power in the workplace and real organisation in the workplace look like. Not like Sally's not thought about those things. She clearly has. This is the bread and butter, I imagine, of um, virtually every trade union um, organiser and activist. But that that would be where my head's at. Let's not worry so much about changing the rules is the first step, but changing the sense of power that people have in workplaces.